I want to offer a prayer just before we share in that offering. I just want to say that whether you come and, and plan to give in a basket through an envelope, many of you give online, uh, many of you participate, either already automatic giving through your checking out, however that happens. I just want to say thank you because when you give to God, you engage him in your lives. We engage him to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with my money, my resources, and you're going to take care of me. So I thank you for that. It allows ministry to happen. Let me offer a prayer. Father, thank you for how gracious you are to us. Thank you for how you give to us so generously and, and joyfully. And we give back to you in the same manner with generosity and with joy. I pray you'll, you'll bless every, every gift and every giver. I pray that you'll remind every one of us, and this is not a ploy to get people to give. I, I pray that you'll help every one of us to not hold on to things too tightly, to remember that everything that we have has been given to us by you, a gracious God. And that it's only, it's only ours on loan for a, a little while. So as we walk through this life, might we recognize all of it is because of your grace. And we joyfully give back to you. I pray that you'll bless the offering. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Just real quickly, following the meeting, this is our annual Sunday, annual meeting Sunday. <clears throat> it happens to fall right into school breaks. We got a lot of people gone, but we kind of set that date early, and that's kind of where it is. Hopefully, you'll stay afterward, after the service. If you're a member, if you're one of our voting members, as Trevor has already said, if you're one of our voting members, please stop by the fireside room immediately after and cast your vote uh, for a leadership, for church leadership. If you're not one of our voting members, please stop by as well. Uh, our leadership team is there, pastoral staff, elders are there, uh, governing board members, ask questions, dialogue with them. Be sure to stop by, pick up an annual report. Uh, looks, like, looks like this. Grab one of those as well and stop by. Let me get, answer a question that some people have asked through the years, and that is this. When, usually when you're annual meeting, you think town meeting. And I just want to give a quick statement or two here that a reminder that the church looks different than the town. Uh, we live in New England. We live in the place of the town meeting. And of course, this, this coming week, the reason school is still out is that this is town meeting week. And so all, all across the state be town meetings. If you've not gone to one, you ought to go to at least one in your lifetime just to uh, enjoy the moment where we debate and dialogue every single thing happening in the town, voting up, voting down. And a lot of people think, well, church, same way. I just want you to know it's not that there's a biblical model that we follow, and it's not town meeting model. Uh, the Bible got here before town meeting day, just kind of a reminder as to how we follow. And, and this, may, this may be news to some of you, but when it comes to the membership of the church, members of the church only have two things uh, that they're required to do in Scripture, two, two things that are, that are the member's responsibility. The first one is to elect leaders. The second one, follow the leaders, those two things. Now, please know leaders have mandates. Leadership mandate, they're supposed to listen to God, and they're supposed to lead well. They hear the people, they listen to God, they lead well. And that's the way the church is to function. And so, by all means, stop by afterward. But also know this, that if you wait, if you wait for once a year to talk to a leader about a question you have, then you've missed the idea of how it's supposed to work. Now, every, every week, all of our leaders are in church. Every week, everyone participates in the life of the ministry of church. So if you see a leader, you have a question, ask them. Ask the question, get your answers, and join the partnership we have as we are on mission together. Uh, every, every January, Diane and I attend a conference with other pastors in our denomination. It's called Network 900. It happens every, every year, the end of January. 
Uh, and the, this group is a group of pastors who happen to pastor our larger alliance churches. So churches of 900 are larger, and this, these pastors get together once a year uh, and, and spend time three days together talking about all sorts of different things. It dawned on us this past year, Diane and I went, we missed one year from COVID, um, and uh, we've been there for 25 years. And dawned on us this last meeting that we were at is that we're the last uh, founding members Uh, of this gathering. For 25 years, we've been attending this gathering. Yes, it's in a warm climate. We're not stupid leaders. We're smart leaders. So yes, in January, we go someplace nice and and someplace sunny. But we spend these days together, and it it was kind of funny feeling for us. We sat there, and there was a a group that had been there originally that they have either moved on, retired, uh, gone to other things. But we're the last ones 25 years ago that were a part of this from the beginning. So it feels a little funny uh, being there, but then exciting because there's a whole new crop of, of pastors, young pastors, and with great vision. But what's really exciting is when we first began this 25 years ago, there was maybe a dozen churches, uh, we 900 or more in the alliance, and now we're talking 70, 80 uh, churches of 900 more, and some of them upwards of five and 6,000. So it's exciting to see that change happening over time. Now, the thing we like about this meeting is that we run it ourselves. So we set our own agenda. Every year, we vote one of us in, one of our pastors in for two years to basically actually take leadership of it. But when we get there, actually before we get there, we send our requests in for things we want to talk about, the challenges we're facing, that kind of thing. So we get to set the agenda. We get to have those dialogues on our own. So interesting, this year was the first time when everyone's been back post-COVID. So one of the key questions everyone's want to talk about is what's the church look like post-COVID? Because it's radically different. It has changed. And uh, so that was a key part of some of the dialogues. So I want to share some of the results that what we learned from this. Now, this is, not, this is not great surveying done. This is anecdotal, but it came from a group of pastors all across the country. And what's very interesting is the numbers are almost identical regardless of where in the country. So that was kind of interesting. So a couple of things. Attendance-wise. Uh, in-person attendance is down post-COVID about 30 to 40% than what it was pre-COVID. In some places, upwards of 50% attendance is down. And that's been across the board. What's been interesting, before COVID, people who attended church in person usually attended an in-person service on a Sunday once or twice a month. The average would be one point, I think 1.8 times per month. So, you know, one to two Sundays a month they attended in person. Post-COVID, a person that calls the church their home attends the church maybe once every eight to 10 weeks. So that's been a, a, a massive change as far as that goes. And now, uh, just a quick side note, was interesting, when COVID first hit, you might recall that, if you were here part of our worship team on a Wednesday, you were getting ready to, for a Sunday, and we made the call to, can't, to not have church when COVID hit and everything had to cancel. So we didn't have anything online or anything that Sunday. By the next Sunday, we were online, and then we were online for you know, over a year in streaming. So every church across the nation found themselves in that same place. When that happened, when we all went to streaming, attendance across the board almost doubled. People from, from, from being in person, online, doubled across the board. The numbers were so strong, incredibly strong. More people went to an Easter service during COVID than any time in the history of the world. More people, of course, online. Now, that lasted for about four or five months, and then it went back down. Why do you think it went up so high so quickly? Fear. Fear, absolute fear. 
I mean, this because it's the end of the world. Is this going to be the end times? Uh, uh, we better tune in and, and make sure we're staying close to God. Giving has a similar phenomena, and that is that giving, when COVID first hit, giving in most churches stayed the same, or in our case, actually went up. That stayed the same for about four or five months, and then it began to go down. Post-COVID giving in most churches experienced about a 50 to 40% drop. In, uh, in giving, uh, and in some places not quite as bad, other places worse. That's kind of an average type of thing. And, uh, and of course, accordingly, churches have had to make staff adjustments and all those kind of things because you have to live within your means. That's what I'm going to say. Volunteering. Interesting thing about volunteering in the church, and churches are driven by needing volunteer staff. What's interesting along that route is the one-and-done volunteers are up. One and done means you, get, you, you are invited to serve in a night to shine, uh, a children's event, something like one time, show up, serve, be done. Those numbers are up. The weekly, uh, the monthly type things, the ushering, children's ministries, the, the things you need consistently, that's been way down, considerably low. But that makes sense as well when you think if it used to be one to two times a month and now attendance is one every eight to ten weeks, that kind of makes sense that that trend has, has been there. The other trend that's interesting in the volunteering thing, which was kind of unique, and that is the new norm in volunteering is this. If, they volunteer, if a person volunteers or they're serving, they attend church. If they don't, they don't. Meaning, if I'm on worship team, I attend church. If I'm off worship team, I don't attend. And so if you happen to be serving as an usher, you show up, and if you're not, then you don't. So that's kind of a unique twist that churches are trying to figure out then, well, how do we, how do we get by that? How do we operate through that? Now, here's an interesting thing, which is an exciting thing. The new people showing up post-COVID are a group of people that across the board are just thrilled to be there. Now, many of us are longtime churchgoers, and I say, hey, you know, welcome, welcome back, glad you're here. Be encouraged by this. There's a whole new group of people that are coming into the church post-COVID, and they are thrilled to be in church. On top of that, many of these, most of these first-time visitors that are coming in are trending towards 20s and 30-year-olds. 20 and 30-year-olds. 30, 30 many young couples, many young people, young families. What's interesting for these many couples who had babies pre or during COVID, or for families with young children, quite honestly, they are tired of isolation. They, I mean, they, they don't want to be at home with the kids any longer. We got to go do something. And church is a great place to go do something. Because there's also a residual fear factor. You know, what's the world becoming? Where is the world headed? So there's an encouragement to be in the church. So we're finding that. But what's also interesting, and this was just across the board, this new, this, these new people coming, 20, 30-year-olds, they are, they are not only coming in mass, but they're not leaving after. Meaning a lot of people, they come in the church and they leave the church. But they're staying, which means this, they're looking for community. One of the things that came out in all this is that so many people are driven for content but they're actually craving community. And so what's happening is they're, they're staying, they're looking for connection points. A couple of weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, I took a picture uh, of Sunday morning following the 10 o'clock service. A couple of our ushers were standing in the center aisle here getting ready to try to clean up afterward. That's what they do. And I kind of took a picture of them standing there and I went up and I said, what are you guys doing? And, and with joy, they were happy. They're saying, ah, we're just waiting. And I said, waiting for what? And of course, I looked, and over here, this section, there's about 50 people. And this is 30 minutes after the service, not 10 minutes, 30 minutes after the service. There's like 50 people all standing over here just talking. I took a picture of them, 20s, 30-year-olds. 
Ah, there was a couple of old guys. Steve Schoenberg, one of our elders, he's an old guy. He was there, but they let him stay. But there's a couple of them in the mix. But for the most part, 20 and 30 year olds, and they're all staying around. And admittedly, I've talked to these ushers, and it's like, I say, yeah, with, with tears, we're saying, you know what? Remember during COVID when we weren't meeting, we dreamed that not only could we meet together again, but that we'd stay and want to be together. Now, admittedly, our church building isn't real conducive for community. One of the things we're looking at right now, trying to work through and process is how to uh, do some renovations and even additions into the lobby to actually have a real cafe out there where you could stay afterward, have coffee, come early, have coffee, come during the week and have coffee, doing something like that. But building community, now catch this, people often think what they really are driven for is content. What they crave is community. Now, before anyone sends me a note, because someone sent me a note and said, ah, we can't say across content. I got it. How about this? How about content plus community? See, that works. That's what the church is supposed to do. So that's what we're finding. Interesting thing. One, one, one last observation, which was quite interesting. In fact, we talked about this quite a bit. Because when someone said it, everyone kind of said, yes, we're seeing that trend. And just kind of follow my thought process here. The one guy said this. It seems that COVID has left the church with just two extremes. It seems like COVID has left the Christian community with two extremes. It says, one guy put it this way, he says, the middle is gone and what's left seems to be either people who love the church, love the pastor, love the city they're in, love the neighborhood, love everything about the world, if you will, and the other group, they're angry at the church, angry at the pastor, angry at the government, angry at the city, angry at the culture. They got this anger mentality. Now understand this, it seems that post-COVID, the world has split into like two sides, right? It doesn't, you don't find much middle out there. It seems like you're either right or left. It seems like you're either joyful or angry. It seems like you're either helpful or hurtful. It seems like there's not a lot of middle and we're finding that in churches, it seems like it's kind of going down the same route. That the middle is gone and people are either all in or they're angry about something. So we talked about this for quite a while. And what was interesting, we arrived at this. So here's the question for the church going forward. If that trend is true in the culture, then it's also going to be true for the pressure, putting pressure on the church. And the question for the church then and for Christians is what? Well, which side do I want to be on there? Joy side, anger side. Where do we want to land so what this Christians, in light of us being annual, our annual, annual meeting and thought process looking forward, so as Christians, what do we do in this culture in which we live? How do we navigate as a church in the culture? I almost forgot one thing. One of the, one of the guys said this question. He said, um, have any of you shortened your church services based on COVID? And we all kind of went, What? And so he said, so they track during COVID, they track numbers really tight. I mean, they watch statistics. And they said that they learned that by the 42nd minute on streaming, by the 42nd minute of the service, people just tuned out, clicked off, 42 minutes. So when they came back to meeting in person, they now do a 50-minute service, 5-0, and 20-minute sermons. Now, they talked, they said some more things, but I passed out after 20-minute sermons. I, I... I completely passed out. I don't know what else they said. So we got talking about it, and they said, 50-minute service. Listen, I mean, don't you agree? If, if you come for a 50-minute service, service in just a 20-minute sermon, don't you feel like you're getting ripped off? And I just want you to know right now, I will not rip the church off. I'm making a stand right now. You show up, and I'm going to give you the whole deal. Yeah. 
Don't, don't clap if you don't mean it. That just, that's just wrong. So what do we do in this culture? How does the church respond? I'm going to give you an answer. It's really a simple answer. Stay on mission. You need to understand that from the very beginning of the church, all the church has to do is stay on mission. The culture will change. The politics will change. The president will change. The right will change. The left will change. Jesus doesn't change. Stay on mission. Stay on mission. Stay on mission. Straightforward. Stay on mission. What does that mean? Well, thank you for asking. (laughs) This morning and next week, I want to look at two different texts. Texts that I have looked at before, maybe a little differently. And do this something a little different this morning. I'm going to start with one story of Jesus and then stop, go to a different story, and then come back to that story next week. But in these stories, I want to get down to this issue of what does it mean to stay on mission. So here's our text, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Here's where we'll start. We'll come back to this next week. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? Don't forget, this guy would have been an expert in the law, so he understood it. So Jesus says to him, so you know the law. Well, how do you, what do you think the right answer is? So this guy answers and says, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Guy's looking for something a little better from Jesus than that. You got it right, just go do it. But he wanted to justify himself. We'll talk about that more next week. So he asked Jesus, and, well, and, and who is my neighbor? So this guy asks a question. He's trying to test Jesus and poses a question to him. So what do I have to do in here in life? And, and just from the very beginning, he asks the wrong question. In fact, next week I'll show you how he even starts with a question that Jesus could have just blown this guy out of the water if he chose to. And Jesus was more gracious. But it makes me think then, if we're going to talk about staying on mission... And let me just start with a question for you. And that question would be this. First question is, what does God want from you? I mean, just very sincerely, think in your head. If I ask you the question, so when it comes to your walk with God, when it comes to you and what you think God would ask of you as a church member, as a follower of God, what does God require of you? What does God want from you? Don't make it complex. Answer it as simply as you can in your mind. And I think if you're honest, we'll probably all arrive at the same place. And you would say, I think God wants me to love him. And you could say it differently. But if we are honest, I think it boils down to that. What does God require of us? To love him. And if that's where you arrive at, I would say that's absolutely correct. I mean, the Bible says that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse, verse 5 is pretty straightforward. In fact, it's the verse that this, this, uh, this uh, lawyer is actually talking about. And basically he says this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strengths. So you, you got it right. If you would say, I, I think we're supposed to love God, I would say, boom, you got it. Now the next question's harder. Okay, do you love God? Do you love God? Now immediately you would say, that's not so hard. Well, first of all, it's not so hard because first you know what the answer's supposed to be. Do you love God? And of course, no one's going to say, no. You're here, you're going to go, yes. But let's just pause for just a moment. Because it actually is a little harder question. It's harder 
But we all know what the answer is. But let's be honest, it's harder because if you're honest with yourself, you'd be thinking, well, what does that mean exactly to love God? Real quickly, you can say, yes, but what exactly does that mean? And you know me, you could be saying, I'm not so sure I'm going to answer because he could be setting me up here. He could be setting me up and just like getting an answer, going to go, boom, gotcha. And so you begin processing a little bit. And for many of us, we go down this road. Do I love God? Do I love God? Well, I don't know what love means, really, to loving God. But, you know, here's the deal. I don't hate God, so I must love him. See, there's a lot of people that get to the answer, yes, like that. Well, I certainly don't hate him, so I must love him. So let's be honest, is that I, you know, I, I, even if you just say yes immediately, I have no real way of knowing whether you're telling the truth or not or lying. You have no idea if I am. So let's just say, okay, you do. So the next step. So, okay, so you love God. How much do you love God? Well, now you're going, a lot, okay? I just love him a lot. Because that's the answer we would give without thinking through what exactly it means. See, everyone knows we're supposed to love God with our heart, with our mind, with our soul, with our strength. We got that. So in our theological world today, we know that loving God is central to our Christian life and living. But the problem in this is this word love. What does it mean? You've heard me say this before. I love golf. I love my dog. I love spaghetti. And I love my wife. Now let's hope that I'm using the word love differently. If I'm using it the same in each of those four things, I'm a dead man walking. Right? Because it means something different when you use it. And yet we so quickly interject that. So we like to have it. So here's how Christians work. Let's be honest here. If I say, you are to love God. Theologically, we like to say, Scott, could you define that for me? Because I want to make sure I get it right. We want a checklist. And so theological circles, if we define loving God, we might talk about being yielded to God, being surrendered to God, obedient to God. Love means obedience. And so we can say, okay, we got it. We got our definition. Um, the truth of it is, I said already, you can say yes, and I'd be pretty hard-pressed to show you or prove you wrong. But there's a woman in the Bible, a woman that has an interaction with Jesus, that if we could bring her in and bring up a chair and have her sit here, we would not be debating the definition of love anymore. If she were here, seated here, she would use words like affection and adoration and gratitude, debt of love. She would sit here and she would teach us, she would show us that loving God is more than an ought to thing. That loving God is, is, is far more than a checklist of spiritual things to do. She would show us that loving God is actually a heart response. So when they say, do you love God? It's not a yes. It's more of a like, show us what that look like. And she would. And what's interesting about this woman is she's not even a church woman. She's not a religious person. Let's read her story. Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet in, with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. And then she kissed his feet and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, well, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's talk about it. So if you have a, a, your, even your Bible on your phone or a you know, paper, paper Bible, if you look at the paragraph heading, it actually says a sinful woman, which is kind of odd because aren't all women sinful? I mean, aren't, aren't all men and women sinful? That's what I meant to say. I, you know, I just got that wrong there. Aren't they all, aren't we all sinful? So let's get the, that's what I, that's what I meant to say. Don't worry. If you think that was a cheap shot, I'm going home with my wife. So she'll take care of it. So don't, don't you worry. She'll set me straight. But very sincerely, we all live in sin. So there's something about this woman and we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, in verse 36, we have, we have the story begins to unfold. It says, one of the Pharisees. Now, here with the Pharisee, we got this religious guy. This is a guy that would have his spiritual life together. This was a guy who had lived his life in such a way that he's living his life to honor God, to do the right things. He's got the rules down. He quotes scripture and, and all the deals. And he invites Jesus for dinner. And they're reclining at the table. And we've talked about this in the past. The table of that day would not be the, the picture of the table that Jesus of the, at the Last Supper. The table would have been three to six inches off the ground. It would, have been, it would have been, depending on size, usually square, quite large, and be laid out in such a way that when the food would come, the people that would eat would lay down. You're literally laying on your side, on one arm, eating with your feet stretched out behind you. I have to tell you, what a delightful way to eat. Um, that would just be delightful. Put a large screen TV in the corner. Man, what a, perfect, what a perfect setting. So that's the setting. That's a reclining at the table, which explains how it is that Jesus is eating and his feet are being cried on because he's laying at the table this way. His feet are behind him and people would have gathered around behind to see and to be a part of what is all taking place. Now, it says in the story, going on verse 37 and 38, it says that there's a woman who happens to come, and it says that she's got a sinful life. Now, hearing that Jesus would be there, this sinful woman shows up, and she's in the front row. She's directly behind Jesus, and she brings with her a jar of perfume. Now, as dinners go, as dinner's going on, she begins to weep uncontrollably. And she weeps so hard that her tears are flowing and they're dripping onto Jesus' feet. Now, real quickly, a quick explanation here. This would not be like dinner at your home or my home. First of all, the Pharisees were very, very wealthy, well-to-do people and had large, huge homes, estate type of setting. 
And typically a meal like this would be held out in a courtyard type area, a larger area, because from what we know of this and other type settings, it would have been a, it's like dinner and a show. It would be dinner that was designed to have a dialogue or a debate. Now, in this case, it was with Jesus. But other times, there'd be a debate where they're just talking about spiritual things. But other people would be welcome to come, not to dinner, but to observe, to observe the dialogue, observe the interaction. So these kind of settings would be normal, that you could come in and watch this thing take place while the dinner guests were around the table. Now, when dinner guests arrived, there was a protocol that would happen. So when you arrived, if you were an invited dinner guest, you would arrive, and immediately, and some of you know this from church history, from biblical history, when you came, there'd be a basin of water there, and typically the actual host of the home or one of their servants would wash your feet. Um, there's, a, there's a ceremonial piece to that in a practical sense, dirty feet you know, in, a, in a sandal society and dirty sewage type roads. So there's a practical side, but also a ceremonial side. They'd wash your feet. Then they'd give you a holy kiss, uh, a kiss of honor, and then they'd anoint your head with oil. All, again, part of the cleansing process for this dinner. That would be the setup for this. So she's there, but she's not there as an invited guest. Now, it's not that she's not invited, but she is not on the guest list for dinner, but she's there as one of the observers. Jesus is eating, and while he's eating, while the meal's being served, she begins weeping. She weeps so hard that her tears run down and fall on his feet, and then she starts drying them with her hair, and then starts kissing his feet, and then pours perfume on his feet. Can we just stop for a moment and admit, this is one uncomfortable dinner party, <laughs> right? I mean, just practically speaking, this is one odd dinner party. Have you ever been in someone's home when they invite you to dinner and you walk in and you know, you just know, you've just walked in and you know that just before they opened the door, they had a horrible fight and that you're there and it's not good. You ever been there? You walk in and not only do they not want you there for dinner, they don't want dinner with one another, but they're stuck. Are those comfortable meals to have? No, they are not. This is an uncomfortable setting. This thing is all going south. I mean, first of all, this woman's weeping. I don't know what to do with a weeping woman anyway, starting place. But let's add to that. So I'm eating, and this woman who's behind me is weeping. Don't forget, this meal is debate and dialogue, and in this packed house, there's a person weeping. Do you just block that out? So I'm eating, and she's weeping, and while she's weeping, my feet are getting wet. She starts kissing my feet, wiping them with her hair, dumping perfume. In the meantime, I'm going, man, Simon, this is the, this is the Pharisee's name, Simon. Simon, I got to tell you, this fried lamb is excellent. I got, is this hand-shucked corn? Oh, man, I got to get, get the recipe before we leave. And Simon has, says, Scott, there's a woman kissing your feet. Oh, I hadn't noticed so I want you to get the picture. This is just one odd picture. This is one odd dinner party as this is unfolding. And then it says, so here, clear, so clearly this woman is interrupting the dinner. Clearly this woman has now become the focal point for the dinner. Uh, verse 39 says at some point, Simon the Pharisee actually starts talking to himself. And he basically says this. It says that this man were a prophet. He would know who's touching him and what kind of woman that she is and that she's a sinner. You ever been with people that don't, that talk, but they talk to themselves, but they clearly talk to themselves loud enough because they want you to hear what they have to say? I mean, oh, 
uh, it's just drives me nuts. You, you know, they just, they just start talking, and you know they're not talking to you, but you know they're absolutely talking to you. And if you say, what did you say? They go, oh, no, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> yes, you were. Absolutely you were. So he's talking to himself, but he's talking loud enough that Jesus answers. So he goes, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And Simon says, well, let me have it. And that's what it picks up in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither one of them could pay. So he forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then again, he turned toward the woman. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came in your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did, you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Let's unpack this for a little bit, then give some application. First, we have the woman. This description of sinful means loose morals. So this woman, if she's not a prostitute, she has the reputation of sleeping around. If she's not a prostitute, which we think she probably is, she has the reputation of town of being sexually promiscuous. And you need to understand that there are, there are two groups of people in this age, this Bible time, that fall into the same category. Tax collectors and sexually active women fall into the same category of absolute horrible sinners. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's how it was. And specifically because she was dealing with sexual sin, she would be seen as dirty, despicable, unclean, unlovable, undesirable. Now, the Pharisee, on the other hand, he would be the holiest that there could be. He'd be seen as the holiest man. That the, the Pharisees were the holiest people. They were the cleanest people. They were the ones who did nothing in their lives but lived to honor God and quote Scripture and memorize Scripture. And not, not, not only that, but the dinner would have been a holy event. Don't forget that there would have been all this ceremonial cleansing before the dinner began. That's why the foot washing, part of the ceremonial cleansing. That's why the uh, anointing with oil. That's why the kiss. And it still happens today. Um, in Israel. In fact, some of you have been asking about Israel. I'm almost ready to release the date and the time for a, a trip. I'll be leading a trip a year from now, if you're interested to go. You go with us, and you'll go every restaurant you walk into, every hotel uh, dining hall you walk into, everyone you walk in, there's a basin, there's a sink, and you can fill the special little cup and ceremonially, you'll watch the Jewish people come in and pour over one hand and then the other and go through a whole ceremonial cleansing before dinner. See, this setting was meant to be a, a cleansed, clean event. So there's a tension. How would Jesus, who is supposed to be a holy man, let such contamination happen by letting this woman, this dirty woman, touch him? Now, this is key to understanding the story. This woman and the Pharisee represent two different classes of people. The Pharisee represents a class of people who are satisfied with their spiritual performance. They're satisfied with their religious experience. They think quite well of themselves. 
you know, all things considered, doing pretty good in the end in the religious scale. The woman represents those who clearly see their own failures. They clearly see what they're capable of. They see who they are. They know what they're capable of. And they recognize that they have been forgiven. They realize just how dirty they are. And they have been forgiven. Just pause right there. Do you realize that no matter who you are, and now no matter how bad your story may seem, that it is not a story that Jesus could, would say, I've never seen that before. And not only has he never seen it, but it doesn't scare him or faze him when he says, forgiven. I don't know what your story is, but it's not a story that frightens God away. In fact, it's a story that causes him to run in to say, you know what you need? You need to be set free. You need to be clean. Now, here comes the point of the story. Two classes of people. The people who have a good opinion of themselves that look at their spiritual experience and go, hey, I'm pretty satisfied with my religious uh, performance. And the people who see what they're capable of and have been forgiven. And the point of the story is, which class do you belong to? If the church is going to be a church to meet the needs of the next culture, you've got to ask the question, which class of people do we belong to? And clarity comes as the drama unfolds, and we'll kind of walk through this and wrap it up. So this woman, she's there probably in a packed room, which is what we expect, and she brings a jar of perfume, very expensive perfume, by the way, and she probably, best we can tell, brought it as a gift because she's there on purpose and brought it as a gift. But now catch this. So we're thinking, that's all we can tell from the story. She brings this perfume, probably wanting to give it to Jesus as a gift. So she probably comes looking for the right moment. She has an agenda that she wants to carry out. But before she can carry out her own agenda, it just falls apart. She's overwhelmed. She begins to weep. Next thing you know is she's kissing his feet and pouring perfume on his feet. So she, she, she's not following her agenda. She's been overwhelmed in that moment. And this next point is critical to understand. You see, if we analyze this woman's actions, we would see things like adoration and affection and gratitude. All of those things, which, oh, absolutely. But you might just miss the key, key piece of the puzzle on loving God. And the word is intentionality. She loved him with intention. Now catch this. She heard that Jesus would be there. So she gets a plan in place. She gets an expensive gift. She gets there early. Don't forget, she's in the front row, which means she got there early for the best seats. She brings her gift, her gift, and now she's looking for the opportunity to express her love. And let's look in the mirror for just a quick moment. How many days How many days of the week do we get up in the morning and say, Lord, today, my whole goal is to make a plan to look for ways to show you that I love you. My plan today is to look for opportunities to show you how much I love you. And the answer to that, and I'll take you out of the picture, how many days do I do that? The answer is not many. Not many is my day based around God. How do I demonstrate today that I love you? But she has a plan in demonstrating her love for him. 
Um, and on top of that, she puts herself at great risk, right? This is the woman who's dirty. This is the woman that in this culture could be stoned. And she's putting herself, dirty woman, in the most holiest and cleanest of places. And think about this. She didn't have to do that. She knew Jesus was going to be there. So the word is out. That's how can we know there'd be a gathering? Because she knew he'd be there. So she could have caught Jesus before dinner and said, can I catch you for a minute? She could have caught Jesus after dinner. But instead, she goes right into the firing line. This is a huge risk for her. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, what would compel her to do that? Here's the best we can tell, is we expect that sometime, somehow earlier, maybe earlier in the day, maybe earlier in the week, she had heard Jesus speak. And somewhere in hearing him speak, she heard the story of forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but that someone like her could be forgiven and be given a new start. You see, folks, so dramatically was her life touched that in front of the world, she would begin to weep and not care. So powerfully was her life changed that this was no longer a risk. This was just what had to be done. Across the table from her, from this woman, would have been Simon. Now, let's just a side note for you. Simon would have taken a little bit of risk having Jesus to dinner. Didn't say he was having Jesus there to test him. Doesn't say he was having him there to, to trap him. He's just having him to dinner. So Simon, as a religious leader, would have been a bit of a trouble having a guy like Jesus to dinner because they, they were trying to dispel Jesus and his teaching. So this would be a little bit of a problem for him, except for he took care of all risks. Because you'll notice he invites Jesus to dinner, but does not invite Jesus to dinner as an, as an honored guest. There'd be plenty of other honored guests, but not Jesus. Because you notice in the story, when he came in, he didn't wash his feet. He didn't anoint him with oil. He did not give him a kiss. So if somebody said, hey, you invited Jesus to dinner, he'd be able to say, well, I did. But I did invite him as an honored guest. In fact, I made a point of making it clear that he was a guest without honor. And for a moment, let's just pause here again and confess that Simon, if we're honest, reminds us of us. Again, it reminds me of me. Because you see, there are times when I invite Jesus to my party and not as the honored guest. I just like to have him there. I mean, think about this. This is Simon's party. This is Simon's night. This is Simon's food. This is Scott's money. This is Scott's plans. This is Scott's house. Can I sit, just stick your name in there too? See, oftentimes it's kind of like this. You know, Jesus, I want you to come to my party. Yeah, yeah, I want you in my life because let's be honest, having you would be a great safety net. Having you would be a great insurance policy. But I really don't want you to change anything. I really don't want you to challenge me. I, I really pray you don't push me. But you know what? Entertainment, if you could heal somebody and you know, change the water into wine, that'd be fantastic. Not asking for it, but I'm just saying it would be Okay. But don't be pressing me to do things. Folks, at the end of the day, God is not here for me. I'm here for him. And I'm here because of him. And at the end of the day, you are not here for any other reason than for him. Not him as your genie. That's just the truth. And now comes the 
convicting part of the story. Verse 47, last, last verse. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, please know at the very ending here, Jesus is not saying to Simon, Simon, you're such a good guy. I mean, you pray every day and you quote scripture and you keep all the rules. To be honest with you, you don't have to be forgiven much. It's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is saying to Simon, Simon, you're one of these people who don't think that you need to be forgiven much because you're pretty content with your life. You see, churches are full of Christians, and I'm one of them. Full of Christians who have been followers of Jesus for so long that sometimes we forget. I forget what I've been saved from. I forget where I would be without Jesus. I forget how radically different my life would look if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus would say, I want you to follow me. And in exchange, I'm going to make you clean. Your past is forgiven. We forget. So here's the key, folks. Listen carefully. If Jesus Christ never does anything more for me than to give me heaven, that is more than I deserve. If he does nothing more for me than to say, you're forgiven, eternity covered. That's enough for me to say, I will live my life to the best of my ability to express to you my love for you. Because that's far more than I deserve. And so it's critical for us as a church and for Christians is this statement, if you are not part of the forgiven much group, then you're self-deceived and the church fails and flounders. But if we've got a group of people who are part of the forgiven much group, these people know what it means to love God. If, it, if you find it hard to love Jesus much, then you probably don't think you need to be forgiven much. But for those who realize how much I needed forgiveness, those people love Jesus much. So the final question is, is simple. So do you love him? And now I've made the question hard, haven't I? So do you love him? Don't complicate it, just answer it. Don't try to explain it, just answer it. What are you pouring out of his feet? What risks are you taking for the kingdom of God? What precious commodities do you that you hold dear to your heart are you willing to hand over to him and say, here, you take the expensive stuff. You deserve it. Those who have been forgiven much have much love. So stay on mission. First part of the mission is real simple. Love God. We'll talk about the next piece next week. Stand, please. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of this woman. For it grabs me and it hits me right between the eyes. Because I've been following you for a long time. I've been in pastor ministry for a long time. 
And it's really easy, easy for me to forget what you have forgiven me of. To put aside what I'm capable of, where I'd be without you. So I'm thankful for this woman that takes all my theology and all my special words I would use and puts them aside because I look at her and I just see love flowing from her to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that for every one of us, we would realize that we have been forgiven much and that we would love you accordingly. Dismiss us today in your grace. Amen. God bless you. I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my turn Till I met